you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll begin reading in verse 4 this morning and go through verse 7. We're going to be in this chapter for a few weeks, and we're going to cover as much as we can of this uh, great picture of faith as it's demonstrated through the lives of the believers. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 4 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us in reading your word, Lord, that uh, the faith of the believers that is presented to us, uh, we not only understand what it was that they believed, uh, but that we would also have that same faith that we would trust you and rely upon your word and believe the promises of God. We pray, Father, that uh, that faith would be evident in our lives. Uh, that you continue to increase our faith as we read your word, that your spirit will convict us of its truths, convict us of the future to come, and convict us of that assurance of salvation that only comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In my first year of college, I began to take uh, classes in what's known as comparative religion. Uh, for those of you who have never taken classes in comparative religion, it's not something I would recommend that you do. It's basically having a Bible study led by an unbeliever who does not believe anything that's written in Scripture, who's trying to lead you to believe that man has written all these things and that God doesn't exist. He won't come out and tell you that, but that's pretty much his MO. <laughs> because his whole job is to deny the truth of anything that exists and to compare what one religion says to another religion, what it says, and assume that they all are saying something very similar. Uh, but yet we'll say it from a different perspective. It's interesting, when uh, the first class I took by uh, this particular professor, whose, whose name was Professor Kruger, uh, which at the time I couldn't get out of my head the horror movie, Professor Kruger, that's what he reminded me of. Um, but anyway, um, I took a class in Judaism. So basically you're looking at the Old Testament primarily and then some of the traditions that go along with that. And uh, again, he didn't believe anything about the Bible or the Old Testament at all. His whole purpose was to say that it's erroneous and it has issues, blah, blah, blah. And so we started studying this, and he kept saying that the concept of faith itself is never found in the Old Testament. It's really a New Testament concept that's sort of been superimposed upon the Old Testament. And, you know, a new believer, I had just become a Christian a few months prior. I didn't know the Bible really well. I couldn't, you know, immediately quote him a verse like perhaps I could today. But I remember after he said this a couple times, I remember raising my hand in class and bringing up Daniel chapter 3. And I said to him, um, 
I said, well, it seems to me, even if it doesn't use the word faith in that particular passage, that clearly these men are demonstrating faith in God to preserve them from the fiery furnace, to preserve them from the hand of the wrath of the king. So what you need to understand is in the Old Testament, the word faith doesn't really occur very often. In fact, the word faith itself, I don't know if it occurs more than maybe once. Most of the time it's the word faithfulness that's used. Um, uh, every now and then you might see something like Abraham believed God and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. But the word faith isn't often used, but that doesn't mean it isn't there. It's like doing a word study, only looking for the way that one word is used. It's obviously there numerous times throughout the Old Testament. That's the whole point of the writer of Hebrews is showing you that this is nothing new. This has always been the case that they've had to have faith in God and the promises of God. And so when I raised my hand in class, he kept talking about faithfulness instead of faith. And I said, well, in this particular case, clearly it's a little bit of both. I said, it's their faith that made them say what they said to the king, that they wouldn't do what everyone else was doing. It's because they believed God would save them. And as a result of their faith, they evidenced faithfulness, right? That, that you have to have faith in order to be faithful. You have to believe in something in that regard. Of course, he dismissed whatever I said and still made me look like a fool. It wasn't like God's not dead and all of a sudden everybody comes to faith in Christ. Um, but nevertheless, that was, a key, that was a key moment in my own life, showing my own faithfulness to disregard what this guy is saying because clearly he wasn't speaking the truth. He thought he was telling the truth, but he wasn't. Clearly, faith is something very important to the Old Testament. We see it again and again. Even the writer of Hebrews would agree with that, even though he doesn't mention Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this context. Later on, he does speak of those who by faith quenched the power of fire. And certainly we see this throughout all of these. There's this long chapter here in which he's constantly pointing out one believer after another after another and how they expressed faith in God. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the first three that he mentions, the most ancient of the saints, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. They're all referred to as the antediluvian believers. I'm sure that's a word that you guys use all the time. It simply means those who lived prior to the flood. So like antebellum are those who lived prior to the Civil War. Now we have antediluvian, those who lived prior to the flood. These are very early saints and who had very little revelation to go by, but nevertheless believed what God had said and acted accordingly. The, the next uh, uh, portion of the chapter that we'll be looking at next week will be the faith of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, and those in that line. But today we're going to be looking at those most ancient of saints. And what I liked, uh, one particular commentator said, that if we think of this as a hall of faith of many people, you really wouldn't think of it as like the heroes of the faith. In fact, he said, if you can picture a school hallway, you know, those long school hallways, and he's like, if you, if you have, uh, if the, the hall of faith is like a school hallway, it wouldn't be like looking at a trophy case with those who have a special faith in God, but rather it would be like looking at uh, a case that included all the pictures of all those who had gone to school prior. So in other words, he's not showing just the best of the best in terms of their faith, but he's showing in each generation how some of them had great faith and some of them had little faith, but the point was they all had faith. They all trusted in God. And so he's helping us to see the need that we need to have that same faith. Again, who is he writing to? He's writing to a group of people who had come from a Jewish background, who had professed faith in Christ, and he's urging them, hold on to that faith, persevere in that faith. It's absolutely essential, not only for our salvation, but even in our growth in 
righteousness. So he's going to look at these first three, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and he commends each one of them uh, for their faith in God. And I, what I want to do this morning for the sake of an outline is to uh, talk about four ways that faith can be demonstrated in the life of a believer, and it, and it is demonstrated in the life of a believer, taken from this text. Here are the four ways. I'll give them to you in advance, and then we'll go through them each in their turn. First, by faith, we learn to worship God rightly. Very important. Second, by faith, we learn to walk with God closely. Third, by faith, we learn to work for God confidently. And fourth, by faith, we learn to witness for God openly. So let's talk about the first one. We're going to be looking at the life of Abel first in how faith helps us to worship God rightly. In verse 4 of the text, the author says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Now, of course, this example is taken originally from Genesis chapter 4, where we learn, here's what it says in Genesis 4, that Cain had brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, whereas Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And we're told that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, if, if you read that sort of cursorily, then you might come to the resolution that, that somehow uh, God is just being arbitrary here. He accepted Abel's sacrifice and yet rejected Cain's, because we're not really given the explicit reason why he accepts one and rejects the other. But if you read a little bit more closely, especially later on, you're able to see that there's something wrong with Cain's offering. And it's important for us to understand this more than any other point. Uh, sometimes we refer to it as the regulative principle of worship. What that means is that God always regulates, or he orders how we are to worship him. He commands us in how to worship him. We don't just come up with any old way. Like if next week on a Sunday I decide, you know what, let's have a clown show. And let's put on a big drama instead of having a sermon, instead of praising God through song, let's praise him through some other means. Uh, because I, I just feel like that's what we ought to do. Uh, we never have the right to do that. Uh, think of all the examples in the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu burned for offering incense that's not the right kind of incense unto the Lord. We think of Uzzah touching the ark when he was told not to. We think of Ananias and Sapphira offering half-hearted offerings unto God. It's never good to go to God in a way that we think we ought to. It's always according to what God commands us to do. And the big difference between Abel and Cain, although I'll have to show you the two different versions of why we think it's erroneous, Cain didn't come because he didn't follow God's word. It's important. It's not that Abel just had, had a cooler idea of how we should worship God, and Cain was lame. It's not that. It's that Abel believed God's word and worshiped accordingly, whereas Cain came in his own manner according to his own desires. So how can I prove that to you? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, when the Lord confronts Cain over his jealousy over his brother and the fact that his own offering was rejected, here's what he tells Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? So what's implied in that? It's implied that he didn't do well. He did something wrong. And what we know about Scripture is that God always tells us how to worship him. There's not a single time in the Old Testament where we just randomly decide we're going to worship him in any old way. 
every time someone tries to worship God in their own way, what is that called? Idolatry. Because they're worshiping God according to their own image, according to their own desires, rather than according to the way God has commanded us. So he says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. Now, there are two main views to what Cain did wrong. And I think there's a lot of credence to both beliefs here. The first one suggests that his error was in offering a bloodless sacrifice unto God. Now, we know that Abel sacrificed the animals he gave to God because it says explicitly that he also offered the fat portions of the animals. So in other words, he's cutting out the fat and giving that unto God. Now, on the other hand, uh, we're informed in Genesis chapter 3, well, not the other hand, but in Genesis chapter 3, we're also informed that when Adam and Eve, after they had sinned and God made atonement for their sin, he covered their nakedness with the skins of animals. So again, a sacrifice is implied. The, the shedding of blood is implied in this passage in order to cover their nakedness. Now, it would have been, in that case, Cain's error by the fact that instead of coming to God through a blood sacrifice, he came merely by his own labor. He's trying to do something that would be pleasing to God in his own way. He offered something of his own labor to God. His natural labor is tending to the fruit of the ground. But he didn't come with a blood sacrifice. Now, we're not told anywhere in the Old Testament that Abel was told, or that Cain was told, that you have to come with a blood sacrifice. Uh, but again, the assumption all throughout Scripture is God always commands us how to worship him. So either God must have told them verbally to Cain and Abel directly, or he would have told them through Adam and Eve, because Adam and Eve knew that they had to come through a blood sacrifice. Does that make sense to you? All right, so there's the, the, the assumption there, at least. And the reason why that assumption is sometimes made by many who read this passage is because of what the author of Hebrews has been saying for the last two chapters. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18, he says, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without what? Blood. He keeps talking about the need for the shedding of blood. He says, nine chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sins. So again, it's a, it's a, I think it's a good assumption. I'm not, I don't know for sure that that's the reason that Cain's offering was denied, but it sounds like a good one uh, in the sense that Again, if we assume that Cain brought his offering as just something that he decided to do as opposed to what God commanded to do, that's never sanctioned in Scripture. But here's the second view in addition to that. The second view assumes that Cain's error consists not in the, the substance of his offering, but rather in the quality of it. In this case, Abel is said to have brought the firstborn of his flock along with their fat portions, which are considered the best part of the animal. On the other hand, Cain is said merely to bring some of the fruit of the ground, but it doesn't say that he brought the first fruits, nor of the best fruits of the crop. Now, in that case, uh, the assumption here would be that Cain uh, came somewhat begrudgingly unto God in worship, giving him a half-hearted offering whereas Abel is giving him the very best of everything that he has to, to give, and that's why it's a better offering, because he comes with faith, loving God and wanting to worship him accordingly. Now, regardless of which view you take in that regard, and then perhaps there's a third view that we're not aware of, uh, the, the, the primary purpose here is that, that Abel is commended because of his faith, and it's important to understand this. Faith can only occur in accordance or in response to 
God's commands, God's word. Here's why I say that. Romans 10, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God or the word of Christ. So in other words, even though I can't tell you for sure what Cain did wrong, God had commanded something that Abel believed and that Cain did not. Otherwise, you can't say that Abel had faith because what do you have faith in? It has to be in God's word. God said something. He gave them a command. Abel believed that command. Cain did not. And as a result, Abel's offering is commended. Cain's is not. You know, in the church today, many people still attempt to sort of find their own way to God or try to come through their own means. They try to think, well, I'm going to somehow get God in my favor. I'm going to offer him something. I'm going to give him money. Maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm not going to eat fish on Fridays, or I'm, I'm going to do some other crazy thing that says, as long as I sacrifice this thing, then maybe God will accept me. And I think the substance of this is that, no, it always has to be done according to God's word. God says how we are reconciled unto him. And that's always going to come first through the shedding of blood through the sacrifice of Christ, but then also simply by faith in God's word. Whatever God says, that we believe. And that's what is commended to us as righteousness, that we believe God's word and we act accordingly. That's what makes our worship acceptable in God's sight. That's the first thing that faith does. Then second, if we look at the life of Enoch, we learn that faith also teaches us how to walk closely with God. Again, verse 5, the author says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Again, this comes from uh, the following chapter in Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, where this is what Moses says simply, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That's pretty much all we have. Uh, twice we're told in that passage that Enoch walked with God. Once we're told that God took him. Now, there's, there's no other account about Enoch in the Old Testament. Uh, but this particular account sticks out because it's in a lineage. It's in a genealogy in which every other man, it says, they lived X number of years, they had so-and-so sons, and then what? They died. The difference with this one is the fact that it's so different than all the other men listed in that account in the fact that it just says that he walked with God 365 years and then he was not, for God took him. Uh, big difference there. Um, but, but that concept of walking with God, it's an expression I think most of us can relate to. We know that literally it doesn't mean that he always was walking around with God, holding God's hand in that sense. Um, but, but it's this idea of having a close and intimate relationship with God. If you think about it from the perspective of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who literally walked with God, if you remember after they sinned, what did they do? When they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, did they seek him out? They hid from him. They didn't want to walk with him. The difference with Enoch is that even while living in one of the most wicked generations ever to live on this planet, for 365 years, He's seeking out God and looking to walk with him when everyone else wants to run from God. Big difference, and that's why he's, he really is um, emphasized in that particular genealogy. For 365 years, can you imagine? You know, he's, he was older than our country is still today. 
So long before the American Revolution, he was walking with God, and he's still walking with God today, if you put it in that perspective. While the country is degrading and deteriorating and everything else, he continues to have this close, intimate relationship with God. And I, I tell you that because in Genesis 6, the very next chapter, it tells us what his generation and the generations after him were like. Literally, Moses says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. That was the generation in which he lived. And yet he walked with God when everyone else was walking in wickedness. Unlike all of his neighbors who had cast off God's authority, he believed in God and that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. And he did. And as a result, he was rewarded. And by that reward, he was translated, if you will, from this earthly walk with God to a heavenly walk with God. Now, I'm not telling you, and don't assume that I am, that if you walk with God, God is going to take you from this earth. There's no promise of that. It's a very unusual situation. It's only happened twice. You know the other guy, Elijah, also was taken in an unusual way. Um, nevertheless, he promises in Scripture, in verse 6, that those who seek him in the same way that Enoch did, looking to walk with him, draw near to him, they will be rewarded for that faith. Even when the generation says, what, what good is it to seek the Lord? You're saying, I firmly believe that God will reward those who seek him in righteousness. That's the second thing faith does. It really causes us to hold on to the promises of God and draws us into an intimate, more deep relationship with him. Then third, if we look at the life of Noah, we also see that by faith we learn to work for God, with God, confidently. Uh, look at verse 7. The author says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Again, Genesis chapter 6, God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy all, all of them within the earth. Therefore, make yourself an ark. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh under heaven. Everything that is on earth will die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and, shall come into, and, and you shall come into the ark along with your family and two of every kind of animal to keep them alive. Now, this would take some faith, right? <laughs> Keep in mind, it had not yet rained on earth. Uh, no one had seen anything like a worldwide flood, not even close. Not only that, but uh, again, they, they lived in the Fertile Crescent area. They're not near the ocean, uh, not really concerned about a big flood taking out their homes. And, I mean, for all of those of you who have been to... Uh, to go see the ark in the hills of Kentucky, you know what a spectacle that is, right? Just this huge boat in the middle of nowhere, nowhere near the ocean. Uh, but that's what it would have been like for people to see that. But nevertheless, seeing things that are yet unseen, Noah believes God's word concerning the judgment to come through the flood, and he begins to act accordingly. He begins to work for God based upon what God has said. And so we see instead of... Uh, concentrating solely on farming now he's cutting down all the trees planing the wood forging thousands and thousands of nails gathering bucket after bucket of pitch 
and doing all the things that everyone in, around him be like, this guy's crazy. He's nuts in every possible way. I mean, I was thinking of, uh, did, did any of you see that movie, The Astronaut Farmer? You know what I'm talking about? The Astronaut Farmer is about a guy who starts to build a rocket ship in his barn. Nobody's seen this, huh? <laughs> it's a fascinating movie. Anyway, the difference between that case and Noah is that at least the astronaut farmer had some training. He was an Air Force pilot and was uh, an astronaut in training who, for some reason or another, he was kicked out of the program or whatever else. And from that regret, he decides to build his own rocket ship and go into space. And so he lives, he's a farmer in Texas, and he begins to, again, accumulate all of this metal and I don't know what kind of plutonium power or whatever it is that he's, he's uh, using to, to lift this thing off the ground. But there are news camera people all around saying this guy's crazy. But in fact, he does go up in the rocket ship and he goes up into space and then he comes back down and everybody's applauding. The difference is Noah didn't have any experience nor training. <laughs> no one had ever been into space or on a boat like this size. No one had ever seen anything like this. So of course they would have begun with the uh, you know, a little bit of chuckle when they heard the idea, and then they began to make him the pit of their jokes. Again, keep in mind, uh, the way the Scripture reads, it could have been 120 years before the flood actually came, if that's the way you interpret it. So for 120 years, this man is making a big old boat, and uh, everyone's, this guy's crazy. Uh, it reminds me of the, the song by Keith Green. You remember he'll take care of the rest? Oh, nobody's ever saw a response here. He, he says this. It's one of my favorite songs. That he says, you just think about Noah toting his umbrella when there wasn't a cloud in the sky. All his neighbors would laugh at his pet giraffe and ho-ho snickers he passed by. But the Lord said, hey, Noah, be cool. Just keep building that boat. It's just a matter of time till they see who's going to float. Just keep doing your best and pray that it's blessed. He'll take care of the rest. He's the weatherman, Right? Indeed, sometimes what God commands us to do seems utterly ridiculous in the eyes of the world, antagonistic to what the world is saying. And it looks like we're some, building some boat in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but yet, faith causes us to obey God's commands when we see what is unseen. We hold on to what God has said, believe the promises of God. He said, that is, it's through that faith that we become heirs of righteousness, just like Noah did, by working for God according to his commands. Even if the whole world is doing business as usual and sees no truth in what God is saying, you believe it and you act accordingly, both through your actions as well as your words, which leads us to the fourth point. Not only does faith enable us to worship God rightly and to walk with God intimately and to work with God confidently, Faith also causes us to witness for God openly. Now, I want to show you this through all three of the men that we've just talked about. If you go back to verse 4, in the latter part of that verse, in reference to the faith of Abel, it says, And through his faith, it's Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, it's interesting that it says that because one thing we know about Abel and the account of uh, his life in the book of Genesis is that he never speaks. <laughs> Not a single time do we hear Abel saying anything. We hear Cain talking to God, but we never hear a word from Abel whatsoever, and yet now it's saying Abel still speaks, which is kind of strange. 
Uh, of course, we know that the only time, it, it has to be referencing what we learn uh, through the, the conversation between God and Cain. When God tells Cain, he hears the cry of his brother's blood from the ground that's crying up and, and crying out for, um, for justice, if you will. In fact, um, uh, the, 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 the blood of Abel crying out for justice, very similar to the passage, if you remember, in Revelation chapter 6, with the souls of those who were martyred for their faith, crying out from underneath the altar, saying, Sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? By faith, and this is very important, I, I think we need to see this, very, especially in our day and age. By faith, we not only believe in the salvation of God's people through grace, but by faith, we also believe in the judgment of God upon this earth on all the wicked who refuse to believe and who refuse to do what God says. Um, it reminds me of a famous painting uh, by William Blake. It's called The Murder of Abel. In that painting, in the, in the background, you can see Abel's uh, dead body lying on the ground, and his parents have found the body, and, and the mother's weeping over him. And in the foreground of, of the painting, you see sort of Cain is sprinting by you, looking, looking at you. And his eyes just have that look of horror. His mouth is agape, and he's got his hands over his ears, running away from the sound of the crying, if you will, as if he could hear the same sound of the blood crying out from the ground. Uh, but it also sort of implies that he might be has, he might uh, also be holding his ears to not hear the words that Abel said prior to him killing him. Uh, that righteous Abel, as Jesus calls him in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, calls him righteous Abel. Uh, that certainly he would have spoken some word to Cain prior to Cain killing him. And it was his righteous words that caused him to murder his brother. Because he could not stand to listen to the word of righteousness. There's something about a believer that stands in opposition to the world that does cause antagonism. And I think you need to understand that. As much as we want to be able to witness to the world and, and show the most loving, respectful attitude we can toward unbelievers, always know that there is going to be animosity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's, it's going to happen. We see that happening in our culture, surely. But every believer who stands for righteousness also condemns the world. That's what he's saying about Noah. By faith, Noah condemned the world. And if we trust in God and what God says about the coming of Christ, we have to condemn the world as well, in the same manner. Of course, the murder of Abel took place very early on in God's revelation, so he didn't have the fullness of the account of, of Christ. He wouldn't have seen uh, Jesus uh, in the flesh. He certainly wouldn't have known exactly how that salvation was going to take place. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, we'll get to it soon, we read that in the fullness of time, once Jesus has come... It says, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel is found in Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, even though uh, a part of our message as believers is the condemnation of the world, the other part has to go along with that, that there is salvation by grace through faith in, in the blood of Christ, you see. And he's saying, that's a better word, but those words still have to go together. You can't just talk about the blood of Christ and not talk about the condemnation of sinners who continue to sin in their wickedness. 
he says, this, this word will continue to be spoken by Abel year after year after year. The testimony of his faithfulness and his righteousness will be spoken year after year. And it reminds me, uh, last week was the 55th anniversary of the killing of the five American missionaries in Ecuador, Jim Elliott and his band. 55 years. 55 years later, their testimony is still speaking from their death, from their blood. Now, there's a part of it, again, uh, the original call, the original cry, when any believer is slain is the cry for justice, judgment. But the beauty of that is that with the fullness of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ, their message also spoke about salvation by grace in his name. And those same people that killed him heard that message and believed in Jesus Christ. That's the beauty, and it continues to reverberate generation after generation, year after year. And we see the same thing in Enoch. Even Enoch, the man who walked with God, did not keep that faith to himself, but also testified of the condemnation of the world. We see this in Jude, verse 14 and verse 15. I didn't say the chapter because there's only one chapter. But they were told that Enoch prophesied to his own generation of the coming of God's judgment to, wicked, to the wicked men. He says this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. You can tell he's talking to an ungodly bunch there. And he says, And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, he is coming in judgment for this reason. So even though Enoch walked with God for 365 years, he's also righteous Enoch who is telling his own generation, judgment is coming if you don't repent. It's coming either way, but uh, there is salvation in his name. It reminds me of Jonah's message, right? So I, I normally think of Jonah doing a mic drop after he, he says, another one's going to be destroyed in 40 days, and then walks away. And he's like a great preacher, right? Um, th the truth of the matter is we're not told everything that he says. Obviously, he must have said, repent, at least. You know, he didn't just say he's going to be destroyed in 40 days and then all of a sudden everybody's repenting left and right. He had to tell them something more than that, but we're just told the very minimal. In the same way, I think Enoch is telling them more than just judgment, but also in the sense of believe this truth, repent of your sins, and perhaps the Lord will spare you. You know? Um, that's the truth of the matter. Same way, we're told in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, a, a herald in his own generation. And if you read First Peter chapter three verse nineteen the way I do, I don't think uh, I don't think that Christ is going to preach to spirits uh, who have already died. But I think what he's meaning by that is that the spirit of Christ was in Noah in his own generation, preaching to those of, upon whom the flood was about to come, and is telling them of the judgment that is about to occur. Because what would be the point of preaching to dead people? They can't repent. Um, he's, the Spirit of Christ is in Noah, condemning the world, telling them of the need to repent, and yet they don't listen. Again, I, I can imagine Noah from the scaffolding of the ship preaching to those coming by, snickering at him. The judgment is coming. Repent, and, and you might be saved. Same way, I, it, perhaps he took some... Uh, preaching tours, if you will, to some of the other cities and the other areas in the surrounding countryside. I can imagine Noah being the very first street preacher, you know, wearing a sandwich board, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, repent, you know, 
the, uh, but they didn't believe, and they perished as a result. Uh, I, I do think that's the greatest fear of half the people in this church, at least, probably three-quarters or more, that somehow we have to go wear a sandwich board and start yelling at people on the street corners that they need to repent. I'm doing it today. Who wants to go? <laughs> the, especially when we do that right to life chain, you stand out there and people start cursing at you because you uh, talk about the, the importance of life. Um, uh, sandwich boards are not required, okay? Uh, you don't have to yell at the top of your lungs, but by faith you do need to condemn the world. By faith you believe in the salvation of God through grace, but you also believe in the damnation of the world because of their wicked deeds. And there is some aspect of that that you have to unveil, you have to reveal. Don't be like Joel Osteen, who only talks about salvation, but never talks about sin, never talks about judgment. It has to be both. The whole gospel story doesn't make sense. Why would you want to be saved unless you talk about the judgment? You have to. That's why Paul tells Timothy, he exhorts him toward the, near the end of his ministry, he says, do not be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord. Of course, he says the same thing. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation for all who believe. But you have to tell them the bad part of the story to get to the good part as well. It's that type of faith that believes God's word that is commended in, in God's sight. We must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But the opposite side of the coin, we must also believe that he brings judgment upon all those who don't. It's a both and. It's not an either or. For God has condemned this world, and all who believe in his word will, will believe it too. Indeed, the world is passing away, John says, along with all of its desires. But whoever believes in Christ, that faith will act openly and witness about these truths as well. They're the ones who will abide forever. Those who, who try to deny the judgment, those who try to deny the opposite side of the coin, they're not telling you the truth. They haven't really believed. The truth of the matter is salvation is glorious because salvation is from judgment. It's from the wrath of God. And God's wrath is just as real as God's love. And the truth of the matter is God has given us a wonderful gospel in Jesus Christ through the shedding of his blood that any murderer, any Cain-like person, any adulterer, any homosexual, any gossip, liar, thief, you all can be saved. Simply repent of your sin and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask you would help us to believe the gospel more. We pray that you would help us by faith to worship you in the right way. That you help us to draw near to you in a more intimate relationship. That it's not just a matter of believing a bunch of propositional doctrinal truths but that we would seek you and know that you reward those who seek you. We pray as well, Lord, that you would teach us to obey and to work with you by our faith, to know that even if the world does everything opposite of what your Scripture says, that we believe your word will act accordingly. And Father, we pray as well, you would help us not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us not to be ashamed of the message of judgment, knowing that the message of salvation only makes sense in the light of that truth. Lord, we pray that you would give us a faith